Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You know, we, we've talked on the show about the Professional Women's Hockey League and how uh, the other day um, we were talking about the the names that they gave out to the, the, the new names. This is the startup league, this new pro league that is going to, you know, build a solid base for women's hockey. And they came out with the Toronto Torch, New York Sound, Montreal Echo, which I still can't figure out, Minnesota Superior, Ottawa Alert, and Boston Wicked. All right, whatever. Uh, but then today they introduced, they, they, they released what the new uniforms are going to look like. Now, let me say this about this. Whether you like the team names or not, the one thing I would think that if you are a startup league, you want more than anything is logos and uniforms and merch that people think, oh, that looks really cool. I got to wear that because that gets people talking and that gets the, the, the logos out there. And the, yeah, Ben right now is on the other side of the glass wearing a t-shirt from the Hamilton Cardinals. They did a redo of their logo and, and, and it's cool stuff. I don't know if the graphic designer for this new league is on vacation. I don't know if they are lacking in creativity but holy cow, you release the uniforms and all they are is the six original teams with their city name written on the front of the shirt of the jersey. That's it. Toronto, Boston, Minnesota, Montreal, New York, Ottawa. That's all it says. There's no logo. The color scheme doesn't even make sense in most of these cases. I don't know why Minnesota is purple. I don't know why Montreal is a burgundy-ish. I don't know why New York is teal. Anyway, if you're running this league, I'm sorry, you're not, you're not doing much to try and get people excited about this and talking about it and buying swag. That's, oh, well, we'll see. We'll see. Well, we're talking about it, but not in the way that you would want to talk about it. Uh, as always, the first segment of the Scott Radley Show is brought to you exclusively by fox40shop.com for sport and for safety. It has to be fox40shop.com. Enter the promo code Radley at checkout and you will get 25% off your order. You know, it's funny as I'm saying this, I think now, and I hadn't really realized this, I think my first guest was the guest we were talking to about this a few weeks ago on this very topic. And there was no intent to do this. Moshe Lander is a senior economics lecturer with Concordia University. Was it not you, Moshe, that we were talking about this a few weeks ago? Everything comes full circle. All right. Am I, what am I missing here? If you're starting up a league is like, remember the San Jose Sharks when they started? The whole thing was they made the coolest uniforms that everybody wanted to buy. This to me seems like a complete swing and a miss by this league. It does seem like they've gone backward or at least gone in reverse order here. So yeah, you need to build up a brand and then you have the big unveil. I will tell you at least that the purple for Minnesota does make sense because of the, the Vikings, Prince, purple ring. Okay, well, uh, sure. Like, but still, yeah, you, you don't uh, unveil just here's, this, here's the letters of the, the city um, and say here's the color scheme when you don't have uh, proper names registered yet and, and it, it, it's just it's out of order and that's the type of thing that you're right, can, can really kill a product before it uh, even start. And, and your point is very well taken about the purple for Minnesota, of course, with the Vikings and everything. I, what I was looking at and how, what just totally went over my head is, you know, when the, with the WNBA, the women's teams, the WNBA teams that are in cities that have NBA teams 
for the most part, have sort of aligned their colors. So it's basketball, basketball, hockey, hockey. I thought, I mean, the, the Toronto jersey is sort of a one, two, like two or three shades of blue. None of the maple leaf color blue, but at least it's sort of blue. But the rest of them, I mean, Ottawa maybe is kind of there. The rest though, nothing like it. I just, I just don't, I don't get, I don't get how you have this opportunity to make this great first impression and nothing about the women who are going to play. I just, I just think they're whiffing on almost everything so far. Yeah, the, the business aspect of it seems to be missing here. And if nothing else, right, it, it gets fan involvement. Help them name the team. Help them pick the team colors. Help them pick the, the logo. And, and let's have uh, submissions. And we're going to select the best one. And they're going to get season tickets. And uh, make it a community event so that you build it into the community uh, rather than unveiling and saying, here it is. Uh, without any sort of consultation or where did this come from or why do I care? Well, think, think of the last number of, and we, we don't have to use the last number, but I mean, the Seattle Kraken, very cool uniforms, great logo, simple, but great logo. And, you know, you go around, I was out in Seattle back in April and I don't know how many people out there are hockey fans, but an awful lot of people are wearing the logo and the hat and the shirt because it's really cool. The, the Vegas Golden Knights. Cool logo, simple, but really cool and immediately recognizable. Again, San Jose Sharks, Los Angeles Kings when they went to black and silver when Wayne Gretzky was there. These things build your brand, as you say. These things make your team recognizable and get people talking and looking like fans. Yeah, and very rarely will fans wear jerseys that have the city name on it. Usually, the city name, if it appears on the jersey, it's usually on the road jersey, right? So uh, the Penguins, for example, have the word Penguins on it when they're playing at home, but they have the word Pittsburgh on it when they're playing away. Uh, So even there, if you're going to walk around Toronto wearing something that says Toronto, uh, all you're going to get, at least in the beginning, is is in quizzical looks from people saying, "And what does that represent?" Yeah, uh, yeah. So even there, it's it, it's missing. But it just it, it, it's it's wide of the mark in so many ways, and unfortunately, uh, it will unfortunately taint the product too, because people are going to associate. Well, if that's the business aspect, then maybe the product is also of the same quality, which it's not, but. Uh, you know, that becomes a lot harder than to have to try and overcome. Yeah, no, and the, you know, New York Yankees have New York on their road jerseys, but again, that's the New York Yankees. They can kind of do whatever they want. They've won 172 championships. They can be the Yankees however they want to do it. So the story that we read today that uh, kind of came out of the blue a little bit, I think, but I don't know that we should necessarily be all that surprised by this, is a, a report in the Toronto Star that the beer store, like the capital T, capital B, capital S, the beer store in Ontario may be on its last legs. The government may change the rules that allows anybody really to sell beer, which would be probably the demise of this institution. Uh, as we've been saying, we've been talking with Moshe Lander, senior economics lecturer with Concordia University. This, um, this, I mean, you're in Concordia, you're in Quebec. This is, this is, this already happens there. Is there any problem with the way it works there or does it work just fine? Oh, it's fine. Uh, and I'm also in Alberta, and I'm also Ontario raised. And so, uh, you know, I see it from a lot of places. Uh, no, there, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Uh, if if the main companies behind the beer store, Labatt's and uh, Molson and Sleeman's, if they're comfortable uh, walking away from this, or at least if they understand what's at stake, uh, consumers are going to like it. Uh, that, you know, you can stop at the grocery store and pick up beer, and you're going to find that there's a lot more beer available to you not just quantitatively, but qualitatively too, because uh, it's going to open the door to 
uh, a lot broader selection than actually what you get at the beer store. Would my assumption as well, based on my rudimentary economics knowledge, is that if you now have multiple stores all selling, would it not drive prices down potentially? It should. Uh, You know, the profit motive, of course, of the grocers, which are going to be the ones that quickly jump into the market, uh, if they feel that somehow they can corner the market uh, on a particular type of beer, uh, then, of course, that could lead to higher prices. But even if it led to higher prices, that's only a temporary phenomenon because that's going to trigger any number of craft beers and uh, small-time brewers that are going to say, all right, well, if that's the price that they can get, all of a sudden I might be profitable even at small scale, and that's going to encourage new entrants into the market, which ultimately long-term leads to lower prices, not higher prices. So at best, that's a temporary phenomenon, uh, not something that's sustainable. Why? Okay, so even though it happens elsewhere in the country, and certainly down in the States it does, why would the government of Ontario at this point be looking to do this? Is there a motive behind this to divest themselves essentially of this? I think it's just a matter of why is the government involved in it to begin with. I mean, you know, the the concept of the beer store in Ontario, I think, goes back about 100 years. So, you know, it made sense maybe as a, a form of uh, distribution control or even quality control uh, back in the 1920s. But in the 2020s, it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have the government involved in this particular aspect of industry. Uh, I, I think, if nothing else, it's probably just a recognition of uh, it is taking up government resources. It is essentially operated as a non-for-profit entity, so it's not like it's a money spinner for the government. So what are they doing? Uh, you know, downsize it, get rid of it, and uh, even if there's jobs that are lost with it, uh, those jobs are going to be picked up elsewhere because there are going to be a bunch of new stores uh, that are going to take up the slack to, to open up beer sections or, or dedicated stores, which is one of the things that we see uh, in Alberta, for example, where there's just beer stores, mm. just not with the capital B, capital S. Well, well, yeah, anytime we're talking about BS, it's, uh, it gets into something. All right. Uh, with, did this become an inevitable discussion after cannabis became legal and people could open cannabis stores privately? They had to be licensed, but nonetheless, we did not have the cannabis store in Ontario. When they started and they got going, was this inevitable? Yeah, it, it, it's one of those things that why, why does the government have to retain some sort of control over distribution of beer, uh, yet cannabis doesn't require the same sort of uh, distributional control? And at what point then do we start seeing this tip over into to other aspects too, where the government says, why exactly are we running a, a localized monopoly over this particular area? Uh, it, it, it's, it was a matter of time, uh, and I, I think you know waiting any longer isn't going to really change society's view toward beer, uh, or, or the money that's that's out there, it's it's not going to create uh, new conglomerates in the way that Labatt's, Molson, and Sleeman's already dominate that market. One other thing that I wondered about uh, as soon as I read this was: look, in the in the last number of months and years, we have seen many people, public sector workers, whether unionized or otherwise, get handsome raises. And th- this is not a criticism of them getting raises. But the private sector has not kept up generally with the raises the public sector has got. And I wonder if the government looks at this and thinks, well, these are people we're having to pay. We can still collect taxes on this and we can divest ourselves so we don't have to pay all these salaries and let the private sector look after it. Right. And because it's essentially being run as a nonprofit organization, if workers' wages are going up, then that translates almost directly into higher beer prices. Like how else are you going to maintain your non-for-profit status? 
if your input costs are going up and you don't increase your output costs accordingly. So if you can offload those employees, like I said, it's unfortunate for them and they will be snapped up elsewhere. Uh, but it does mean then that in order to be profitable on your beer portfolio, you can operate at lower prices uh, w- without needing to take on the, the public sector workers that come with it. So uh, for the beer drinker, th- this is generally something that should be seen as good news when you're getting uh, wider variety, higher quality, uh, greater quantity, and at lower price, that, that seems like the, the perfect mix. Does this then, okay, so let's say this happens. We're hearing that this could be announced in the next month. We don't know for sure, but that's what we're hearing. If this is, does it inevitably then follow, as this did after cannabis, does it inevitably follow that the LCBO will follow behind, or is there something different about spirits and wine? Well, I, I hope it, it does lead to the end of the LCBO. Uh, again, that, that is something that's particular to Ontario, obviously, the O. Uh, in the LCBO, but you know, other provinces have maintained their their monopoly control, and some have gotten rid of it. Uh, there's really no reason to have it uh, again, other than it's an anachronism that made sense uh, back in the day, and it doesn't make sense now. Uh, so, yeah, once you spin off the beer store and people get used to it, uh, I, I guess maybe there's a, a little more caution about spinning off harder uh, alcohol. But when people see that. Yeah, it really doesn't affect the, the beer story all that much. Probably easier to sell uh, the idea of selling the, the LCBO and uh, being done with that too. See, what I see happening here, and maybe I'm just uh, way out of left field here, but if this were to happen, I, w- I think that very quickly many of the private cannabis stores would start selling booze as well. It would be the one-stop shop for all your various needs and wants all in one place. I could very easily see a whole bunch of them getting into that. It's possible, but I could also see the grocery stores doing it too. Yes, right, right yes. next to the pop aisle, you just have your beer. And so you go stop over and pick up a case while you're picking up a case of water and you're picking up a couple of bottles of Coke. So it, it, it's very easy that you're going to see uh, a bunch of people grab onto it and you're going to start to see dedicated stores then, right? You're going to have you know, your beer expert that opens a store that has a wide variety of beers then. Uh, if the government not only privatizes or gets rid of the beer store, but if they also broaden what is allowed in the province and interprovincial trade within uh, beer and quantities of beer, then you really could see a, a booming market here. Uh, it's just a matter of how prepared is the government to, to stand up to uh, a more puritanical sort of uh, group within society that is going to see this as the root of evil. Uh, and that's why the government needs to maintain control over these things. If, if you can look past that, then there's really nothing but positive here. Uh, Moisha Lander, Senior Economics Lecturer with Concordia University and future designer of professional women's hockey uniforms that will actually sell and get people interested. Always, always appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Working on it now. <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. My next guest uh, usually is on here talking about food and food-related items, and I'm sure we'll get into that as well because that's part of the story for sure. But he is clearly a man of many talents and many areas of expertise. He's got an excellent piece that's in the on the spec.com and the star as well. Uh, the headline is Hard Lessons on the Economy for Gen Z and Millennials. This is, this is it involves food. It's broader than food. I want to bring in Sylvain Charlebois, who's a professor of food distribution and policy and the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Always appreciate you coming on here. Thanks for this. No problem. This is, uh, boy, it, for generations, we've always said, you know, the kids will do better than us. 
uh, eventually. Our, our parents thought we would do better than them. Their parents thought they would eventually do better than them. And that's what you want with your kids. Is this the first time that we are not believing that? Or is this just the first time in our lifetime that we're not believing that? Not really. I mean, uh, the intent of my of my uh, article today was to reassure the younger generations. I mean, I don't think there is one generation that didn't go through any hardship. Mm. I mean, that's basically the reality of life. Uh, economically, uh, uh, we've all suffered one way or another, except perhaps the boomers. I must say, the boomers really got it. I got it easy because they really were on the upswing after the Second World War, and uh, and they, everyone was banging them to to, to work, and uh, and things were great. But uh, we live in a very complicated place. Uh, since then, uh, I mean, the Gen Xs uh, went through uh, the 80s and 90s that weren't necessarily pretty, uh, but they survived. I mean, they survived, and uh, and now they are. Uh, most of them, many of them, are actually uh, prominent uh, citizens of our in our society. Uh, for millennials and Gen Zs, uh, of course, it's tough. Uh, so uh, interest rates are 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 high at five percent. Uh, but in 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 the 80s, it was more like 15 percent. The unemployment rate was like 17 percent. You couldn't beg to get a job in those days. So. Things aren't necessarily easy, but they're not disastrous either. Mm. And so I, I think it's important to keep things into perspective. And you, you mentioned boomers, and I, I would argue even, and I think you're right, but I would argue if people today saw how they lived as kids, I mean, it was a lot simpler. Houses were really much, much smaller, wartime houses. Yeah. And, you know, so it, it's not like they've lived the great life, the the luxury life all along. Certainly now their homes are worth a lot and they've got retirement and everything else. That's great for them. But uh, you're right. Every generation has had its things that it's had to deal with, even though it doesn't seem like that. This though... Jobs are harder to come by, at least well-paying jobs, good-paying jobs. Homes are much more expensive. Uh, There's a lot of things that if you are young and trying to get into the workforce now that become more difficult. And even if you can put together the money to buy a house or to get a job, you know, we'll get to the food part about this because it's food and other things. You probably have a lot less money to spend on those other things other than the absolute necessities, probably. Exactly. And so... I mean, uh, obviously, uh, I do uh, address uh, the food issue in my article, and uh, over the last uh, decade or so, we have seen uh, younger generations just uh, imposing uh, a new law around um, uh, sustainability, uh, economic responsibility, uh, new tastes, flavors, local foods, and all, all these values have become much more influential and the food industry, because the younger generations were were asking for it, they never looked at price. Really, uh, they nev- they may have actually looked at price, but not as not as much as now. I mean, these is that because they were living are, at home, Sylvain? Is that because they were living at home and didn't have to look at price? Probably. Well, there's millennials right now are probably uh, feeling the worst of it because the, the oldest ones are what 44 years old. They're economically very active. They probably have children and a mortgage, and so they're they're being hit quite hard. The gen, the gen, the gen X's are are 
uh, are beyond 44, so they're they're doing okay. The Gen Zs uh, is is a mixed bag of different people, and many of them, as as you just mentioned, do live at home. So it's hard to assess. But the millions are fully committed to the to the economy, and and that's why they're really suffering right now. And so that needs to be underscored. But are they going to get through it? Of course they will. Will indulgence come back like? Uh, it was before COVID. Of course, it will. It will just take time. That's that. You know, when you talk about indulgence, that's a really interesting thing because I wonder. When after reading your piece, and I've wondered this before, uh, certainly people have to eat. There's always going to be grocery stores. There's always going to be restaurants. But I've wondered about the grocery stores that are higher end or the restaurants that are more expensive. Are they going to make it through this, or are we going to be? for maybe a generation or part of a generation, a dollar store economy, for lack of a better word? Yeah, well, I mean, there, there are some adjustments along the way. I, I just think that, uh, that the younger generations are, are, are getting uh, a bit of a lesson from the economy, uh, and, uh, and, and they will continue to buy different products, but also I think there'll be uh, also a dash of... of uh, of realism as they buy things and uh, so expectations will are being adjusted as a result you don't have much of a choice if you have less money you you want to save the planet you want to do you want to vote with your wallet but there are limitations severe limitations when you're spending way more to make sure that you have a roof over your head and, and like i said i mean the, the, the difference between now and just a few years ago is that uh, things have changed dramatically in just 12 months. And so, and I think that uh, just looking at the Fed in the United States and, and the Bank of Canada here in Canada, my guess is that we're not going to be seeing uh, major interest rate shifts again like we saw in 2022 and 23. So I think the worst is behind us. It's just a matter of actually allowing the young, gener- young generations to adapt. There, there was a time for some people that shopping at the dollar store or buying groceries at no frills might have been, and you know, we can scoff at this now, but might have been seen as embarrassing or, you know, I don't, I don't shop there. Yep. I shop. Has that changed? A little, I, I must say. I mean, um, I constantly get uh, emails from people and even posts uh, copying me, uh, kind of saying, you know what, I, I went to Walmart, I went to Dolorama to buy food, as you've been suggesting. And, and so food elitism is uh, taking a backseat to, um, to, to uh, many people's financial reality. <laughs> yeah. that's, and frankly, I go, I mean, I earn a good living, I go to Dolorama to buy food, why not? Why wouldn't I, really? Because well, there are a lot of products that are sold at supermarkets, the same exact product, half price. Why wouldn't I take advantage, given the fact that I'm paying more for this and I'm paying more for that? Yeah, I, it, the idea almost would seem that some people who own small businesses, because the small businesses are having a hard time competing. Walmart, with, with the amount of stuff they buy or others uh, with quantity, can, can bring prices down. I wonder if some of these small business owners can even not afford now to shop at their own restaurant or their own store because they have to go elsewhere because it's just too expensive. Oh, absolutely. I mean, let's face it. Uh, I think it was, um, I can't remember which uh, banner, which company 
But uh, one executive from, from one of our grocers did acknowledge that uh, anywhere between 5 to 10% of, of their own employees went to food banks on a regular basis. A grocer. Can you imagine? That's an embarrassing statement. He did say that uh, during a show. I can't remember when it happened last year, but this is the reality of the food industry. You're in an industry to feed people, but you need help. And yeah. uh, I, and if you're if you're running a food company, you want to think about that. You want to think about how you you take care of your employees first. It is uh, it is tough times. There's no question, and it is going to change things. Uh, I think uh, Sylvain is absolutely right. Sylvain Charlois, professor of food distribution and policy, and the director of the Agri Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie. We always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. All right. Take care. Bye bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So with all the stuff that is going on in the Middle East right now and Canadians being over there, some of them, there are reports that Canada has some military personnel in the area. Now, some of the reports are that they are simply there removing Canadians or trying to remove them on flights. Others say there are there is much more going on there than that. I want to bring in Stephen M. Seidemann. He is uh, the Patterson Chair of International Affairs at Carleton University and Director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network. Stephen, thank you for this today. My pleasure. So in a situation like this, and, and before we get to this particular one, I'm thinking of any major terror situation, terror activity, and we could even bring it back to 9-11. When 9-11 happened, now the United States is pretty well capable of looking after its own self, but when 9-11 happened, did Canada offer or send any military personnel to aid in any operations? Do you know? Well, uh, one of the first reactions to 9-11 was uh, NATO has very few assets of its own, but one of the few things it does have is AWACS planes that are the planes that have the big disks on them to control airspace. Right. And so uh, NATO sent some of those, and Canada was a contributor to that. So then we had people on those planes. Not every country agreed to do that. Some pulled their, their personnel off of those planes because they didn't want to be involved in a situation where you might actually be directing a fighter aircraft to down a civilian aircraft. But that was one of the things that we did at the outset. Uh, I don't think we sent any special operations forces to the United States. I think they had the situation well in hand after 9-11. Right. And th- so this is a little bit different, but th- th- there are there is a suggestion. Is it a suggestion or is it a known fact that we have some special operations people over there? I think there have been reports about it. I don't know the specifics of it. Uh, the special forces in Canada don't advertise where they go. <laughs> yeah, the fair. And the government tends not to talk about it, and the media gets to speculate about it. So... Uh, there have been reports, but exactly which units, which size, not entirely clear. So, uh, okay, if we do, is that something that is an appropriate act for us? Uh, this was, you know, what happened with Hamas, it was a terrorist action. We do have Canadians over there. The, the report is that uh, the, this, this group would be helping to protect our embassy. Uh, is that, would that be appropriate? I think so. I think this is something that we've done in other places. Whenever there is an evacuation, we tend to send troops ahead of time to do the reconnaissance to, to provide uh, information. Uh, so that way we land planes in safe places that if we have helicopters, that we're not putting them on this way, that 
uh, we're identifying uh, the Canadians that need to be pulled out, uh, and the Special Operations Forces are very good at collecting information and acting on it quickly. It is easy to forget that an embassy is considered a piece of the country that it represents. It's a, it's a piece of land. So technically, these people, if they were over there, are protecting a piece of Canada. Yes, but not just doing that. I mean, they're they're clearly doing that, which is fairly standard procedure. But they're also probably gaining information about uh, the Canadians who are in Gaza and near Gaza, so that way, in case they we're going to spend some effort to try to get these people out, that we have a better uh, picture. So that way, we you know don't do anything that's too foolish, and we do things that are fairly safe. But we also try to get uh, protect the Canadians who are there because not only are there. Canadian territories in a lot of countries where we have embassies, right? Whatever embassy is, that's Canadian territory. But we also have Canadians elsewhere, and the job of the Canadian government is to protect Canadians wherever they are. Is this a is this a situation that they might be there because the Israeli military would be so tapped that they could not do this? Or again, is this something that under almost any circumstance that something like this happens anywhere in the world, we would potentially send someone? I think it has more to do with us having the best information that to, to have about our people there. I don't think it's about us substituting for the Israelis. The Israelis are quite capable uh, about uh, rescuing hostages and all the rest of it. They have their own special operations forces. Most of the battle right now that's going on is probably not using the very, very sharpest uh, tools in the Israeli box. Uh, so I don't think that this is a matter of us supplementing or complementing their forces that we're working together on this. I think this is more a matter of us having more eyes, better understandings, that way we can make the best decisions. If we have sent someone over there, if we've sent troops or special ops over there, is it by definition, have we taken a side in this conflict? I mean, we've taken it (laughs) sort of politically, I guess, but if you put people on the ground have we officially taken a position? Not really. It depends on what they're doing. Uh, the troop, they can be going in either one of two directions, right? They can be doing things that, that get in the way of the Israelis or supporting the Israelis. They can be doing things that get in the way of Hamas. Well, they probably get in the way of Hamas, but hmm. uh, I don't think this really you know, changes our status in the situation. We've allied with Israel basically on this, that we've taken their side uh, of this. And so this does not really put that in any kind of danger, but it also doesn't really change things in terms of that because we're not, again, promising our troops to fight alongside with the Israelis. So it, it doesn't really change our alignment in the situation. And so what happens if when they were there, they did find themselves suddenly in a combat situation where something came to them, uh, presumably they're not going looking for it, but something came to them and they ended up in combat. Are they, are there special or unusual or different rules that they would have to follow to not engage or are they over there to do whatever they need to do? Oh, I'm sure they've been given restrictive rules of engagement so that way they don't get a candidate into the middle of a dispute. There Again, the idea of these troops going there is not to engage in battle. It's to, to gather information. Uh, now, there may be, if there's some effort where we want to send troops into rescue Canadian hostages, then those will be the given orders from the various highest levels of the military. And uh, they will be doing, you know, using limited force to do that. But that if that were to happen, 
um, they would they would certainly have rules that would separate them out from you know the conventional rules that you have as an infantry unit running around Afghanistan or something like that. But is it is it possible to separate in the eyes of the world? There are countries that are very much on Israel's side, like we are, and there's countries that are not. In the eyes of the world, as soon as we send uh, special ops there, regardless of what they're doing, in the eyes of countries, have we staked our position? I don't think people are paying much attention to this. I don't think it's very visible. I don't think it's very large. I don't think people's positions on this are really being shaped by this. I think it's the more the statements of the prime minister that matter in terms of how people perceive Canada's stance in this conflict. Do we train for this kind of thing? I mean, not we. Do, 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 do the special ops, is, the, is this exactly the kind of thing that they would train for, or would this be something that would be a special, unusual circumstance? Uh, protect embassies. I think they train. I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure they train for that. Hostage rescue. Absolutely, that is part of their day job. Training for that. Uh, facilitating evacuations. It's not the first time uh, they've been involved in facilitating evacuations. We've been doing a whole lot of that lately. Between um, Sudan last year, Afghanistan a couple of years ago, Lebanon. You know, before that, uh, this is part of their one of the things that they do from time to time. So it's not something that's far out of their their normal uh, training and, and doctrine and what they're prepared to do. And would it be their responsibility? Because one of the things that you would not want to do is you want to evacuate Canadians, but there's also the possibility that some people there might be sympathetic to the cause that we don't share. Would it be their responsibility to check who they are evacuating or do you evacuate Canadians period and sort it out later? That's a really good question. Uh, that's something that is usually handled by global affairs. Is they're the ones who usually know who the Canadians are, and and give you know, create the lists that that uh, clean up special operations that might be helping to evacuate. Uh, it's a whole government effort where the different bodies in government are trying to figure out who are the Canadians. Uh, but I'd say in general, they they probably, if the situation is really fast moving they'd be more concerned about getting Canadians out than anything else. Right. So show a passport and we'll get you out. And, you know, if we have the situation like, you know, we've had um, women who have gone over, and this is one example, there's others, but women who have gone over and been involved with ISIS, let's say, and then want to come back, you sort that stuff out later. If you've got a Canadian passport, though, we'll help you get out of harm's way right away. Well, that's, that example is that kind of the opposite, right? Which is that the Canadians and, and uh, women who went over to join ISIS have been stuck there and have not been right uh, so uh i honestly can't tell you for sure how this process works uh in the middle of, of a fast movie situation about what takes priority it's a uh, it's a fascinating story that we uh, we may have well we do i guess uh, we think we have people there and uh and trying to get canadians out of there and that our military could be in that area and uh as I say, I, I, you probably don't want to get too, too involved if you don't have to, because you don't want to create a position for Canada that you are taking a military position. But uh, Stephen Seidemann, P- Patterson Chair of International Affairs at Carleton University, Director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network. Thank you for this today. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You will remember the incident a few weeks ago in which a hockey player over in England had his neck sliced by a skate blade and died on the ice. It was a horrifying thing. It's, uh, I've watched the, the clip of it. I, I cut it off 
right after the skate hits his throat just to see how it happened. But it just, it's, it's, it's horrifying. And it's a, the nightmare of anybody who plays sports that such a thing could happen. Well, today, a few hours ago, story comes across the wire that a manslaughter arrest has been made in the death of that player. Now, the police in Britain don't say who has been arrested it would only make sense that it's the other player, the player whose skate did the cutting, but we don't, they won't say, they haven't said that yet. But I want to bring in Jeff Manishin. He is a criminal defense lawyer here in the city of Hamilton. Uh, love having you on the show here. Jeff, how are you today? Just great, Scott. You? I'm very well, thank you. So for the sake of this argument, for this, not argument, for the sake of this discussion, and we don't know, but we assume, but let, let's say that the arrest, the arrested person has been the, the other player, because that's the only thing that really makes sense at this point. I can't see anyone else who would be. How do you, how, if you are law enforcement, if you're a prosecutor, if you're whomever, how do you get to the point of deciding that something that happened on the ice has risen to the level of a potential criminal act because that, 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 that is a huge step up from either an accident or something that is happening within the confines of the game. A hundred percent, Scott, that's the starting point question because you don't have a criminal offense of manslaughter unless you have some form of an unlawful act, whether it's a matter of, at least by what you've said in terms of the, the English law, gross negligence or some form of unlawful act in the nature of an assault. So if we went back in Canada, in history, where we have cases such as Todd Bertuzzi and Steve Moore, or Marty McSorley and Gino Ogic, um, I, will, I go back far enough, I was uh, an articling student at the time of Dan Maloney and Brian Glennie. Mm-hmm. Dino um, Cicerelli uh, at Maple Leaf Gardens, another one, yeah. Dino Cicerelli, Teddy Green, and uh, Henry Boucher. Um, the, the first issue is when you have <clears throat> conduct in the course of a regulated sports activity, they look at it first and foremost as a conduct that we might characterize as within, generally speaking, within the general rules of the game. And we know the rules of the game sometimes involve fighting and sometimes involve high-sticking and sometimes involve, you know, uh, headshots. With, uh, but when you have conduct like a two-hander to the head or hitting somebody from behind and driving his head to the ground and to the ice several times, you get into conduct that is not reasonably within the parameters of the rules of the game. So that's why we've seen prosecutions in Canada for an unlawful act that might have led to an assault causing bodily harm and assault with a weapon. Now let's turn this into the issue in the, in, in the U.K., and it's kind of similar. Unlawful act manslaughter, if you have death occurring due to a criminal act. I'll leave aside for the moment gross negligence. Scott, you've seen the clip. From what I've read, the way, and what I, it sounds as though, um, Johnson was skating up the ice with the puck, Petgrave skated over towards him, collided with another player. His skate blade came up, and it, it came into contact with Johnson's neck. Is that what you've seen? Yeah. Now, uh, so, yes, that, that is, although it's very hard because of the, the quality of the video, it's very hard to see whether he collides with another player or how his foot gets into that position because it's a weird, weird position. But let me just back up for one sec because in all the examples that you cited before, and they're all valid. In each of those cases, there was a specific malicious intent to do something. There was a stick swinging or there was Bertuzzi jumping on the back of Steve Moore and driving his head into the ice. There was something where you could clearly say he intended to do something. It may have led to an injury that he didn't anticipate, but he clearly did something that he knew could have if he was thinking it through. This case 
potentially, I think you're looking at one saying, well, we didn't necessarily say that he knew, but it was so reckless that this is a different kind of thing because it's not a necessarily, we don't know, but it's not necessarily a malicious act. True. And in fact, we want to separate that category out because you're right. The conduct I've taken you through and the conduct we've seen in Canada involve the intentional application of force and the intentional action of breaking the rule or going outside of the rule of the game. So if we have the situation with Petgrave, to get into the realm of what might be characterized as criminal negligence, or in the UK they call it gross negligence, it's conduct that really is a marked departure. They use the language, mind you, he's in breach of the duty of care towards the victim, breach causes the death. The conduct was so bad as to amount to a criminal act or omission. What do we have there if we used it in Canadian parlance? The concept, concept of criminal negligence, which is another way, criminal negligence causing death, another way to get to an unlawful act manslaughter or an offense in itself. If you have conduct that demonstrates what's called a wanton and reckless disregard for the life and safety of another person, it's a marked and substantial departure from the standard of care you'd expect. Uh, Scott, I have trouble seeing how we could get there. They say in the articles they've got experts. If we say that a, a hockey player skating towards another one comes into contact or doesn't with another player, loses his balance, falls forward, skate comes up, how can you characterize that as a marked departure? The only way I would say on that one is in the, and again, the video is not ideal because it's not 4K, it's not crystal clear, it's hard to see. It looks like there's a kicking motion, but it's really hard to tell if that's a kicking motion or him trying to regain his balance or something, but it does look like, well, there could be a kick there that I suppose could get it to the point where it's unusual or so far away from normal that you could say there's something different. Well, there's two things in relation to that. If you say the kicking motion is intentional, so somehow as he's flying through the air and his skate is coming around, he's intending to kick out towards Johnson. That'd be a difficult issue to be able to show from the standpoint I would think. of intent. So now let's change it, and it's not a matter of intent. The conduct is so reckless, the way he handles his skates as he's going through the air, that it's really a marked and substantial departure from the standard of care we'd see from a hockey player in the midst of a game. Really? What evidentiary basis would you have for that? You certainly don't have a body of law. You certainly don't have a body of facts. We've only seen a handful of instances. There's been a couple of cuts with skates. Now Scott changed it five degrees, and we've seen cases of kicking, where you can see a kick in motion in the back of somebody's leg, yes, and you see the skate cut to the back of the leg. Now that's a scenario where you know both players are up. One hits another against the boards. You see a kick in motion in the back of the leg, serious cut. Now we're into that intentional uh, conduct, which is outside the scope of the game. But that's not what I gathered with respect to Petgrave because he's falling, isn't he? Don't you see? Well, him? it's where how high. How off the, uh, the ice did the skates go? His skate was up. Uh, it, it was well. It was up high enough to get another guy in the neck. Like it was a. It was a very odd angle for a, a place for a skate to be. I'm not. I'm not saying that for a second that it's not. It was very. I've never seen um, a, a hockey player in this position before. So it is definitely unusual. But, but again, okay, so out of the realm of the game, I remember a number of years ago in one of the heated, when back when both teams were good, they're getting back there again, but when in a heated battle of Ontario in the playoffs one time when Daniel Alfredson was playing, some people may remember this, the, it was a very heated game, and at one point, Alfredson fired a slap shot at one of the Maple Leaf players in the middle of a game. 
And it was very clear, even though he denied it, it was very clear what had happened because something he had just been rubbed out or whatever. So let's say that puck had not caught the player in the shin or just missed him. Let's say it got up and hit him in the neck and crushed his larynx and that guy died on the ice. Can you prove that Alfredson was shooting at that player? It becomes, I would think it becomes, and if you say, well, that's reckless disregard, well, you could argue, could you not, that every single shot that isn't exactly accurate, any shot could have done that by accident. It could have been deflected and done that. It's funny you should say it, Scott, because I was at a Leaf game once where they were getting pelted and they pulled their goalie and at some stage Dion Phaneuf was on the ice and the opposing player shot it right at Dion. And I thought to myself, geez, you know, that's, that's pretty hard. Uh, you're beating them, and you're going to shoot a Dion coming out of the, you know, just on the ice with an empty net. The issue would be this. Is it, if you had a player who was shooting the puck at an opponent who was way far away from the net, to the point where we're getting back into that realm of intentional, would we say that's outside the scope of the rules of the game to shoot a puck at a, directly at a player, not at the goal? Well, now we're back into that intentional act, that unlawful act that is outside the scope of what's reasonably contemplated because we recognize the player's consent to the use of force in the scope of the, in the course of the game and that, you know, within some broad parameters, what's reasonably referable to the way the game is played. Shooting a puck not at the goal but imposing player, Scott, you could build a case out of that. But it's not on the basis of recklessness, it's the basis of intentional conduct. And remember, in our Johnson case... I don't think they'd ever be able to show that he intentionally brought his skate around in such a position. It would be, well, okay, so that would be, uh, again, I would... I should say, brought his skate around in such a position to hit Johnson's neck. You and I live in Canada. We watch a lot of hockey. Many people listening watch a lot of hockey. I wonder if the fact that this is in England and potentially, we don't know this, the investigating officers may never have watched a hockey game before. I don't know. No, Scott, what they indicated in the articles was they'd consulted with experts. So they would need to get experts with respect to right. hockey and how it's played. But who are those experts? I mean, the point is, if you've never watched hockey before or very little of it, might your decision about whether or not this is a chargeable offense be different than someone who has seen a lot of hockey? Oh, if I'm a police officer and I'm trying to evaluate whether the conduct is or isn't a marked departure from the standard of care that you'd owe to another player, that's going to be, value, that's going to be determined in part by expert evidence. You are not going to make that decision on your own as a police officer. No way. And remember, by the way, here too, Scott, what we've seen is it's an arrest for suspicion of manslaughter that we don't yet have a criminal charge. In Canada, by the way, when we are, when our officers arrest, they have to have reasonable and probable grounds to believe the person committed the offense, not simply suspect. So it could be they've arrested on the basis of suspicion. They may want to interview him. They may want to get his side of the story. He may choose to give them his side of the story, and they say, gee, given that, we don't have a case. So we won't equate an arrest on suspicion to being, and he will be charged. Let's allow for the investigators to investigate. But clearly, I'm sure they have talked to experts, and they say that. Quote, we have been speaking to highly specialized experts in their field. That would be experts in terms of the kind of conduct that is generally within the realm of what you'd expect to see in a hockey game. That's what they're looking for. So let's say that he does get charged. We do, again, we don't know, but let's say that happens, and let's say he decides to go to trial, and he elects a jury, uh, a jury trial. Jury trials, you are permitted to have a jury of your peers. Could he argue that his peers are hockey players who understand the nuances and the action of the game as opposed to 12 people who have never seen a hockey game before? They're not really my peers. No, it reminds me of a cartoon. 
I saw years ago in The Wizard of Id, where the lawyer stands before the king and says, my client likes to be tried by a jury of his peers. And the king says, I'm afraid that's impossible. We've hung most of his peers. <laughs> okay, here, peers mean simply members of the community. It's not people with the equivalent experience. In Canada, uh, Scott, our, our jury of peers means members of the community selected pursuant to our jury selection rules and process under the Jurors Act. Those are peers, people that are members of the community. So what do you think then becomes, what, what would you anticipate will, would be the deciding factor on whether a charge actually gets laid? I think I, I would probably approach it this way. Number one, if, if Petgrave does submit to an interview and explains how and why he went through what he did, hypothetically, since I lost balance, I was out of control, I didn't even see where Johnson was, the next thing I know, I'm in the air, I come down, I had no idea even where he was physically. I certainly had no sense of if he was close enough for my skate to hit him. I had no sense of where my skates were even going because I was being knocked off my feet. The investigators may say, gee, that's a reasonable explanation. We don't have enough basis to proceed with the charge. We've got experts to say the conduct looks unusual, but he's given us an explanation. We won't proceed. On the other hand, the case has gotten a lot of attention. And it could be that they might say, based on what they have from the experts, uh, we are going to proceed. Well, you can bet that uh, Petgrave is going to have experts to be able to challenge those called by the prosecution. And we could get into the realm of not only what it is as to Petgrave's explanation for how things happened, but what experts say as to whether it was or wasn't within the rules of the game, or generally rules of the game, and prosecution has to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. Same situation in the U.K. is here. Mm. Would, and we got to go in a second, but would this be something that you would anticipate athletes in all kinds of sports all around the world would be watching for? Because uh, we, I used the example when I was setting this up at the top of the hour that a pitcher in baseball might throw at a batter. That happens all the time. But all of a sudden, the ball gets away and hits a guy in the head and kills him. Didn't intend to, but you did intend to throw at him. You could use examples in football of a, a, a certain tackle, or you could use examples in any sport. Is this something that athletes would be very concerned about? We go back, Scott, you and I are far back, Jack Tatum and Daryl Stingley. We wound up with a broken neck and paralysis with a, you know, a hit to the head. Um, certainly athletes are going to look at that because what it gets into is the realm of the criminal law and criminal justice system, shall we say, intruding into the world of professional sports. That was an issue that was raised over the years with cases like the Philadelphia Flyers, Dan Maloney, etc. If you're into the realm now trying to evaluate an incident and trying to say this is a marked and substantial departure from the standard of care and therefore criminal, because it's so far out of the realm of the rules of the game, that's a real challenge, and certainly athletes would be concerned about that. And I have to say, I believe there's got to be some room for separation. I don't think the criminal law should be getting into cases that are, at least I'll call it reasonably, within the scope of what could be anticipated in a game. It's a, uh, it's a fascinating one. We're going to be keeping our eyes on it. I didn't expect that it would get to this point, but uh, certainly it's um, something is happening here, and whether it goes anywhere further, we'll... Uh, We'll be seeing that in the next little while. Uh, Jeff Manishin, criminal lawyer here in town with Ross and McBride. Always appreciate you coming on and talking. Oh, and it's always a pleasure chatting with you, Scott. All the best. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.